You're listening to the North Canton Chapel Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you. It's good to see you. I love that line in that song. It says, I'm overwhelmed by all that you are. Oh, how I love you. That's really the heart of worship, isn't it? Seeing Jesus rightly and responding to him accordingly. I'm overwhelmed by all that you are. Uh, For those of you who are guests in the room, welcome. Uh, For those of you joining us online, welcome. My name is Micah. I'm the worship pastor here, and as I always say, because it's always true, I am honored uh, to be able to lead us in worship as we study the scriptures today. Uh, And so if you would, uh, we're going to be in two main passages this morning. The first one is Genesis 4, and then the second one is 2 Samuel 24. And so if you want to kind of hang out at Genesis 4 first, that's where we're going to be, and then we're going to hop over to, to 2 Samuel 24 a little bit later. Uh, but we are in week five of our series called Ancient Rhythms. And in this series, we've been examining different spiritual disciplines, or rather means of grace, that help us to grow in our relationship with Christ, that help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, if you will. And so we've looked at the rhythms of Bible study and prayer. We've looked at fasting and silence and solitude. And today, we're going to look at worship. Now, worship is a really vital rhythm for the body of Christ. In fact, I would say that it is why we are created. That we are created to do one thing and one thing alone, and that is to worship God. The Westminster Larger Catechism puts it this way. It asks the question, what is the chief and highest end of man? And it answers, a man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Said another way, mankind's purpose is to worship God forever. So if you've ever had the question in your mind, what is my purpose? It is to worship God and to make him known. Romans 11.36 tells us that for from him, God, and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Acts 17.28 reminds us that it is in him, again, in God, in Christ, that we live and move and have our being. We were made to worship. Another reason that this rhythm of worship is important is because the rhythm of worship is the foundation for many of these other disciplines. We can read our Bibles and worship God. We can pray and worship God. We can fast or practice silence and solitude and worship God. But worship is this bed, this foundation that all of these other rhythms sit on. When we understand worship properly, the way that we practice every other rhythm changes. 
When we have hearts of worship, hearts that seek to praise and adore the sovereign Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, these rhythms become life-giving moments. That we can, these life-giving means that we can commune with the God of the universe. But if we have the wrong heart, the danger of any practice is that it becomes a box we check. It becomes just a thing we do because we think we're supposed to, or even worse, it becomes a box we check because we believe the lie that we have something to prove in order to work our way into God's grace. The gospel is not just the good news that saves us. It is the good news that keeps us. We don't bring anything to the table in terms of our justification, and we don't bring anything to the table in terms of our sanctification. These are the works of God in the hearts of his children. And so as we study these ancient rhythms, we would all do well, myself included, to remember that we need to gospel our hearts because of Christ, you and I have nothing to prove. He proved it all. He did it all. I am overwhelmed by all you are, oh, how I love you. There is nothing we can do, no rhythm that we can practice that will cause God to love us more or cause God to love us less. His love for us is perfect. Hold fast to that truth, church. Many have done their best over the years to define worship. And some of these definitions, they get very specific. They drill down on one aspect of worship, while others are far broader. In his book, Reformed Worship, author John T. Rhodes, which I just really love that name. I think it's a cool name. Doesn't, it just is what it is. Uh, defines worship this way. He says, worship is the right response of God's people when they gather to meet him. Okay, so pretty simple, right? It's just the right response of God's people when they gather to meet him. Pastor Louis Giglio from Passion City Church defines worship in his book, The Air I Breathe, this way. He says that worship is our response to God for who he is and what he has done. It is expressed both personally and corporately in and by the things that we say and the way that we live. I appreciate how those definitions can give us a broad view of worship. A view of worship that doesn't center simply on one aspect of it, but looks at it in a larger view. I took my hand at trying to make my own definition of biblical worship this past week, and so this is what I came up with. Biblical worship takes place when the people of God respond to the work of God by expressing praise to God personally and publicly in a way in which God prescribes through the scriptures. Now, this is really good for a theological textbook, but none of you are gonna remember this. So that's not very helpful. And so I, uh, I commissioned our resident wordsmith, Pastor Brandon Marshall, and I was like, hey, I, I need a way to say this really, really succinctly, and he helped me in a great way. He said this, biblical worship happens when God's people respond to God's work God's way. That's a little easier, right? Biblical worship happens when God's people respond to God's work, God's way. A broad view of worship is important. Often when we think of worship, we can think too narrowly. In fact, for many of you, when I say the word worship, especially when the worship pastor is on stage, we often think of one thing. What is it? 
music, music. Those things have become synonymous in our minds. And while worship is a clear and biblically commanded aspect of how we worship, it is not the only aspect of worship. But if we hold to that narrow view, where we just focus on one thing, we quickly can run off into tangents. We quickly become divided over differences in style or preference or performance level, and that brings us to the greatest enemies of this worship rhythm. So I'm gonna give you three enemies. The first enemy of biblical worship is this. We think that worship is about us. As long as there have been people of God trying to worship God rightly, there have been people of God getting in their own way by making worship more about the worshiper than the one who is to be worshiped, God and God alone. And so because of sin, we are all, myself included, we are all tempted to believe that our times in worship are primarily for the refreshing of our souls. We believe that worship should make us feel a certain way that we should have some type of visceral, warm, fuzzy reaction, and if we have that reaction, if we feel that deep in our chest, then suddenly worship is good. Church, worship is not about us. Worship is not about how you feel. It is about God and God alone. So I think this would do us well. I know it will do me well. Let's just say this out loud together. Worship is not about us. Say that. Worship is not about us. Let's say that again. Worship is not about us. A third time because it's got to sink. Worship is not about us. Worship always originates with God, and it is always for God. He always makes the first move and we respond as he has commanded us to respond. The second enemy of biblical worship is that we think worship is all about us. I didn't misspeak. It needs stated again. See, because not only are we tempted in our sin to believe that worship is about us, we are tempted to believe that we are the ones who should decide the style or method or worship. We decide the worship we want to give to God. But in that, we're deceived. Isaiah 45 verse 9 gives us an example of a piece of pottery talking back to the potter. And it says, woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots does the clay say to the one who forms it, what are you making? Or, hey, your work has no handles. I'm supposed to have handles. That's ludicrous. God is the one who tells us whom, how, and why we are to worship we don't get a say in the matter because we are not God. It's often been said, when we create our own universe, we can make our own rules. But until then, it's not our universe, not our rules. So, when, so we don't make the rules when it comes to worship, God does. Because biblical worship happens when God's people respond to God's work, God's way. Yet still, 
We have to war, don't we? We have to war against this deep-seated sinfulness that deceives us into thinking that the way that we worship should be more pleasing to us than anything else. This, man, this hits me in my heart because I can be selfish. I can want it my way. Am I the only one? This shows up even more quickly, again, when we have that narrowed view of worship that focuses just on one thing, especially regarding musical differences. When we narrow our view of worship to focus more on music than maker, we get sideways quickly. Here's some phrases that I've had asked or said in my last seven years here. Why is the music so fast? Why isn't the music faster? Why don't we sing more new songs? Why do we sing so many new songs? Why don't we sing more hymns? Why do we sing so many hymns? Why isn't it louder? It's too loud. Why can't I feel the bass in my chest? Why why is the bass so loud? Why don't we have spontaneous worship? Why don't more people raise their hands? Why are the lights so dark? I'm nervous about the lights right now. Why are they so bright? Why don't you sing my favorite song anymore? Why doesn't the choir sing more? Why does the choir sing so much? Can you believe that worship leader wore a hat on stage? His voice is too raspy for me to sing with. Can you believe that kid wore shorts today? Adding a new chorus to an old hymn ruins it. What is that new song that we sang this morning? Something about nothing but the blood of Jesus? Those are real questions that I have received over the last seven years almost that I have had the honor of being the worship pastor here. And I don't bring those questions up to condemn us in any way. Opinions are one thing, preferences are one thing, but when we elevate those things over the person of Christ in worship, we're doing it wrong. And there have been days when I have walked off the stage and I have just wept because I'm so thankful for the way that you worship Jesus, the way that you sing to him and lift him up. And there have been other days that I've sat in my office and wept because I believe sometimes the greatest hindrance to the people of God worshiping biblically is the music ministry of the local church. It is my greatest frustration and my greatest fear as one of your pastors that the tools that I am responsible for providing to help us worship God rightly could be the very things that distract us from seeing him rightly in the first place. May it not be with us, church. Second Timothy chapter four, verses three and four warns us For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, Paul here is not speaking to musical worship. He's speaking specifically about teaching and doctrinal issues that exist within the local church, but I don't believe it's a stretch to apply this to how we view musical worship within the local body. Because if we are not careful, we will just run to what we like. 
I will run to what I like. I mean, think about it. When you first began attending NCC, you probably thought to yourself, do I like the music and do I like the message? They're like our litmus tests when we're looking for a local church, right? My question for all of us is, those things can be good guiding practices, but it's, do we start with, are those things true of scripture? Is the music that is being sung true of what the Bible says about who God is? Is the message that is being preached true? Is it lining up with the words of scripture? That is our first litmus always. If we like it, it's icing on the cake. Whether we like it should not be the primary method that we determine, is this where I should be? Sometimes we don't even think about the soundness of the lyrics that we are singing if we like the tune, do we? There's some new songs and some old songs that have terrible theology. The standard for worship comes from God, not from us. Again, it is not about what we like. It is a battle that I must fight. It is a battle that I'm asking us to fight together. The final enemy of biblical worship is that we think worship is all about us. Bet you didn't see that coming. See, we can again be tempted to make worship about us when we don't go about worship in the way that God has prescribed the worship of him to be. Remember, biblical worship happens when God's people respond to God's work, God's way, not our way, God's way. And so we must always approach God on his terms, not ours, because it is far too common for the modern day church to begin thinking about worship gatherings like this one, beginning with our desires and our preferences in terms of liturgy rather than scripture. Now there's a term used in theological circles around the world of worship, and it is called the regulative principle of worship. Now, this principle basically says that scripture, God's word, the Bible, has all authority and it regulates everything that we do in worship of God. And therefore, we don't do anything other than what scripture teaches us to do. This is a good thing. Part of my responsibilities here at NCC involve planning our worship gatherings. And as I plan them, I try to be sure that I am consistently applying this principle that the songs that we sing should be word-for-word scripture or should have deep roots in scripture, that the order of our gatherings should be orderly and Christ-honoring from the very first welcome and call to worship to the final benediction as we leave, it should be concluded and rooted in our scriptures. The problem with the regulative principle is that there are far too many who talk about this principle that begin to apply it legalistically, right? They begin with a good place, But they would say, you know, hey, we shouldn't have colored lights, whether they're flashing or not. Because colored lights aren't in scripture. Normal lights are okay, even though electricity wasn't there either, but we won't talk about that. We shouldn't have a drum kit, because a drum kit isn't mentioned in scripture. Cymbals are, and drums are, they're just never together. Really? We also don't seem to mention microphones or amplification of sound for some reason. That's also not in scripture, but I think we like to hear things. And so that drifts off the map as well. I won't run down that road any farther, but do you see how easy it is? Even when we begin with the right heart, 
to say scripture is everything. It's all based here. How quickly it is to drift off course. Preferences aren't sinful unless we elevate them over the person and the purpose of our worship, Jesus. Again, preferences are preferences. We like what we like. That's okay. But when we elevate them over the person of Jesus, we are doing it wrong. Worship is not about us. Worship is about God. But then how should we worship? How should we practice this rhythm? How do we worship God rightly? Does he even care about how he is worshiped? This is where we turn to scripture as we always should for our answers. So we're gonna work backwards. Does God care about how he is worshiped? Yes. Yes. We're not gonna turn there. Uh, Exodus chapters 25 through 40. Okay, it's a long chunk. I'm not gonna read it all out loud to you right now. Don't worry. This is in this passage where God gives the instruction for how the people of Israel are to construct the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And if you read through these chapters and passages, we see that God gives unbelievable detail to how this building is to be constructed, to every aspect of its function, every little piece of it has symbolism and meaning and purpose. God cares about how he is worshiped. Next, let's look again together at Genesis chapter four. We're gonna begin in verse three. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. In this passage, we see here that there is worship that God accepts and there is worship that God rejects. Abel brings the very best of his flock, the firstborn and their fat portions. These were choice cuts of meat, and this was going to cost Abel something because he can't now then take his prize meat and take this and sell it. He can't go and profit from it. He can't do anything of it to benefit himself. Instead, he sacrifices it. It costs him something. He took his very best, and he lays it before God. We see here that Cain brings some of his harvest. It's interesting that it makes this distinction. It tells us that Abel brings his very best, but for Cain it just says, well, he just brings fruits of the ground. Not necessarily the best of the best, not the choice fruit, just some fruit. And we see here the intention of Cain's heart is not the same as that of Abel's. And we see that by what God says to Cain. God warns him, and he warns him about the state of his heart. Did you notice that? Look in verse 7 again. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, if you worship the way that I have commanded you to worship, if you would obey me in the way that I have commanded you to obey me. See, Cain and Abel don't just show up one day and go, hey, so uh, I think we should probably worship God, 
and I'm gonna bring some fruit and you're gonna bring some of the meat and well, that seems good, right? Like they don't just make it up along the way. God has given them directions on how he is to be worshiped. And God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain, you're going to want to do it your own way. But if you do, sin is crouching at your door. Rule over it. How many of you know that the corporate worship that we offer to God on Sunday mornings is a Saturday night or even a week-long decision? See, naturally, our hearts run contrary to the things of God. And so the choice for us to intentionally prepare our hearts to offer praise to God begins the moment that you and I leave this building after the benediction. In that moment, we again begin to prepare our hearts to bring an offering of praise to God the next time we gather together. Biblical worship happens when God's people respond to God's work, God's way. And the war that we must wage against is our sin nature that tells us, hey, you know what? Don't set an alarm. Don't set an alarm on Saturday night. You don't need to. You'll wake up on your own. The sin nature that tells us we're just going to bring God our leftovers rather than our best. Notice in this passage also the quality of the offering has more to do with the heart of the giver than the offering itself. The offering is important, but the heart matters most. But we are a people who strive and run after convenience, aren't we? We love it when things are easy. Worship is not about us and worship should not be easy. I'm gonna push a little bit here. I talked to our online pastor, uh, Matt Brumfield, earlier this week and I, I was like, hey, is it okay if I push here? And he said, yeah, we can push here. This is the blessing and curse of church gatherings online. The blessing is beautiful because for those that can't come together because of medical conditions, when your kids are sick and you're taking care of your family, or if you're on vacation or out of town for work and you're like, I don't wanna miss what's going on with my family, those are beautiful things. If you're new and you're checking things out and you're joining us online, that is a blessing. It's a great way for the church to gather when she is scattered. And Pastor Matt does an incredible job of helping our online ministry to function in a biblical and a beautiful way. But this is the curse of the online gathering. It's easier. Well, you know, I just slept in, and I don't really feel like rushing to get there. I'm just gonna watch it online. I don't really feel like seeing people today. Any any of you ever been there? Sometimes you just don't wanna see people. I've been there. I just wanna worship with my pancakes and my pajama pants. Charles Spurgeon wisely once said, there are difficulties in everything in life, except in eating pancakes. (laughs) Actually said it, it's one of my favorites. Who is at the center of all of those statements that I just mentioned? I am. Again, don't hear me saying online is bad, it's not. 
has to do with the heart. It has to do with our hearts. Worship is not about us. So worship should not be convenient. Worship should take work. Worship should cost us something. When we gather together like this, we come not to receive, but to worship. We come to give praise to God for who he is and what he has done, overwhelmed by all he is. And so we must be cautious to not allow the blessings that God has given us in order to stay connected as a local body and to worship him to become the excuse for us not bringing our best in worship. King David was once tempted by convenience when it came to worship. Flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 24. We're gonna begin in verse 21. And Arona said, why has the Lord my king come to his servant? David said to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Araunah said to David, let the Lord my king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Araunah gives to the king. And Araunah said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to my Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land. And the plague was averted from Israel. I will not offer to the Lord my God that what cost me nothing. Is that true of us, church? When we gather, does our worship cost us something? May it be true of us. Have we put the heart work in before we ever walk in these doors? One of the things that I've said to our worship team is they prepare music, is that we always strive for godly excellence and not toxic perfection. Preparing is important, but we are not looking for perfection. We aren't perfect, only God is, so we need to quit trying to do that. We strive for excellence in what we offer to God. And so begin preparing your heart for Sunday, the moment that we leave these doors today. So now that we know that God does care about how he should be worshiped or how we should worship, how then do we do that? How do we praise him? So we have this problem, and it's a language problem. So in English, we use the word praise. We sang it this morning. We're going to praise the Lord. The problem is that in Hebrew, there are seven different words with different meanings for our single word praise. Uh, And so we're going to do a little bit of a Hebrew lesson this morning, and I believe that as we look at these words for praise, we can gain some ideas on how does God desire to be worshipped. So the first word is yada. If you want, you can try and say these after me. That could be a fun exercise today. So yada. Yada. Some of you are thinking of Seinfeld. Don't do that. Uh, To revere or worship with extended hands is what this means. 
to hold out the hands. So this is, this is always the fun thing. With Hebrew, the word never just means what it means. It always carries tone. It carries feeling with it. And so yada is like when your favorite sports team comes back in the very last second of the game and scores a win. What is your response? Physically, we're like, yes! Right? Hands go up in the air. Watch a sports crowd. Whenever your team scores the winning touchdown, yada! Praise be to God. That's exactly what it is. Yada carries this response. When we think of who God is and what he has done, we cannot help but lift our hands in praise of him. Yada. I'm overwhelmed by all you are. Halal. Halal. To boast, to rave, to shine, to celebrate, to be clamorously foolish. That's a fun one. To be clamorously foolish, even more fun, is that this is the most common used word for praise. It is where we get our word hallelujah, or praise Yahweh, praise the Lord. Halal is a festival of joy for the one who has created all and is worthy of all our worship. Our worship should boast in Christ. It should be joyful. Zamar. Zamar means to make music to celebrate in song and music. This is the most straightforward one. Music should be a part of how we worship God together. Toda. Toda is an extension of the hand. It is thanksgiving, a confession, a sacrifice of praise. Then these last two are some of my favorite uses of toda. It means thanksgiving for things not yet received and a choir of worshipers. I love this. It's the biblical word that gives weight to the fact that we should lift our voices together in praise. Right? A choir of worshipers. You're all in the choir. I don't know if you knew that or not. Every time we sing, we are a choir of voices lifting praise to God. And then I love that thanksgiving for things not yet received. This is the praise that looks to God and trusts his sovereign nature and will and says, whatever comes, Lord, I trust you and I thank you. Barak. This means to kneel, to bless God as an act of adoration, to praise, to salute, to thank you know, it is often that we say the physical is a catalyst for the spiritual. This is why sometimes at the end of service, we'll invite you down to the front of the stage to kneel and pray because a physical posture sometimes shows humility before God. But we also need to remember that with any physical posture of worship, God considers the posture of our hearts before the posture of our bodies. Raised hands do not necessarily equal changed hearts. They could, but they don't always. Tehillah, this is a hymn, a song of praise, a new song or a spontaneous song. This covers about every base we have in terms of songs, doesn't it? But also here it's important to know that this is a hymn is not a genre, right? It is not a style of song. Hymn is a word that means a song of scripture, specifically a song that is either deeply based on scripture or is verbatim that scripture sung. And then the last one is Shabbat. This is to address in a loud tone, to shout, 
to commend glory and triumph to God. This word for praise has a tone of a father encouraging his children. Has your son or daughter ever been a part of a sport or a performance or at a graduation ceremony and they did something great on the field or they finished their big scene and you just erupted in a shout like a proud, like, yeah, that's my kid. This is Shabbat. It is pride in who God is. It gives glory and triumph for who he is and what he has done. Some of you, you do this during the sermon, you don't even realize you do. When a scripture is read or explained in a way that encourages your spirit in the Lord, you say, amen. Right? Amen. Hebrew word that's typically used at the end of a prayer. Amen means agreement. Yes, this is true, or so be it. But as we think about praise of the North Canton Chapel, it may be that as we look at these seven Hebrew words, you decide that you're going to implement these practices personally. And if you do, again, remember that it is always not about us. It's about him. So any action that we take, any of these incorporations of praise that we begin to work on and practice don't have anything to do with us feeling a certain way. We practice them because it is a biblical model of worship to God because worship happens when God's people respond to God's work in God's way. And then lastly, I've got three minutes to hit seven questions that are just common questions for us here. So I'm gonna do my best. Again, to quote Charles Spurgeon, praise is the rehearsal of our eternal song. By grace we learn to sing and in glory we continue to sing. And so specifically, I am gonna narrow our focus. We've been talking about a broad view of worship this whole morning. I'm gonna narrow our focus a little bit for us here and talk about music, because music is an important and biblical part of how we worship God together. And so here's some questions that you may ask, maybe you don't. What if I don't know the song? What if I don't know the song? This is gonna happen. Psalm 96.1 tells us to sing a new song to the Lord, so we are gonna follow that and sing new songs to the Lord. This morning we sang a new song, Seth led us in Praise the Lord by Phil Wickham. Uh, And so if you don't know a song, as you are listening to it, here's what you should do. You should think about what we're singing. If I don't know it, think about the lyrics. Reflect on them. The first time especially that you hear a new song is a great time to do that because biblically sound songs are more about what they say than how they sound. Biblically sound songs are far more about what they say than how they sound. And so meditate on the lyrics if you don't know a new song. What if I don't like the song? Y'all okay? What if I don't like the song? That's okay. It is okay. I kind of love that there are songs that you don't like. There are songs that we sing that I don't like. I don't choose songs because we, I don't choose the songs we sing because I like them. Or because I think you'll like them, honestly. Liking the genre, melody, or, or arrangement of a song is not the first criteria for us singing it. The first criteria is does this accurately line up with the scriptures? Is the song that we are singing saying true things that scripture says and praise to God? And here's the fun thing about songs that we don't like. 
they help us remember that worship is not about us. So if you don't like a song, use it as a reminder from the Holy Spirit that worship is not about you liking the song. And then take a minute and meditate on those lyrics. Because I guarantee you that even if you don't like the tune of the song, you may really be encouraged by the lyrics of it. And then sing it anyway, because it's good for us to do that. Because here's the truth, the song that you love, someone else doesn't like. And the song that you don't like, it's somebody else's favorite. And that's okay, if you don't like the song. What should I do during instrumental sections, or O's? (laughs) Y'all felt that one more than I thought you were. (laughs) If there are O's, sing along. These are modern examples of Shabbat, shouts of praise to God. And so if there are O's, sing along. That's a good and biblical practice. If there's an instrumental section, use that as what the psalmist calls selah. Moments of pause to reflect on what was just sung. And so if you hit an instrumental section and you're going, I don't know what to do right now, think about what did I just sing? What did I just sing? Use those moments as reflection and in prayer. Number four, is it okay if I don't sing? That depends on your heart. We are over and over in scripture commanded by God to sing. We see it consistently in how he calls us to praise him. Singing is part of how God wants us to worship him. And so if you're not singing because you're reflecting on the lyrics of a song and a spirit of prayer and worshiping God in your heart, that's okay. But if you're not singing because your preferences are not being met with a certain song, then again, remind yourself that worship isn't about you. Repent and get to singing. And if you're not singing because you think you can't sing, let me encourage you to take the posture my mother did her entire life. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Again, you're covered. If you can't sing, you're covered. It's good. Number five, if I request a song, can we sing it? If I request a song, can we sing it? Possibly. You know, I've had many requests for songs over the years. Some of them have been good, and some of them have been less good. Uh, I don't mean that, by the way, in terms of style or genre or preference. I mean that in terms of theology. Again, when I consider a song for us to sing, and this should be in your minds too as we are singing, is this biblically accurate? Is it singing true things about God and to God? If so, that passes the first test. Second, is this conducive to congregational singing? That's a question I ask when someone brings me a song. Some songs just aren't. In fact, most songs that are recorded in a studio are pitched up really high because it catches your ear on the radio. It has nothing to do with the thought process of congregational singing. Almost every song we sing here at NCC is at least three steps lower than the original recording. Almost every single one. As recently as this week, we walked through uh, the next quarter of music and began to re-pitch some songs and change the keys on things because I'm going, I feel like we need to do a better job at getting us to sing together. And here's the deal. We don't always do that perfectly, and we're not always going to do it perfectly, uh, but we're going to do our very best. 
Number six, what do I do with my hands? What do I do with my hands? Remember yada? We should and can lift our hands to God in worship. This is not a charismatic thing, this is a Bible thing. This is not a worship preference or style thing. Yada, lift up holy hands to God. Also, you can clap. You can, it's allowed. You don't have to wait for a worship leader to start it. If you're feeling it, you're gonna clap, on beat preferably, is always good. (laughs) But you can. And if none of those work for you, if your pants have pockets, that's a good place, I guess. Um, Number seven, I would like to be a part of the worship teams at NCC. Do you have room for me? Yes. Yes. We are always looking. This is just a deep conviction of mine. So we don't hire band members. We don't hire worship players. If we don't have somebody to do it, we just don't do it. Okay? I believe that the music of a local church should express the local church body. It should be made up of us. It should, be, it should feel like us. So I'm not trying to be somebody we're not. We're just trying to be us. And so yes, we are always looking for folks to serve. We have opportunities in our band, in our choir, and in our production teams that serve in our kids' ministry, in our student ministry, in our online ministry, and in our Sunday morning gatherings. There are almost 60 people presently that represent the worship teams as volunteers here at NCC. It is incredible. It is a privilege and honor to serve alongside them as we worship Jesus together. And so if you would like to be a part of that, if you're going, hey, I'm just willing to learn. I don't know anything, but I want to learn. Email me. That's my email. It's the real one. It actually goes to me. If you're angry about something else I said, email me too. Church, I know there's a whole lot today, um, and I pray that it is helpful to us. I just want us to see Jesus rightly. (laughs) I want us to not make worship about what it's not. not about us. It's not about me. It's not about what I like. It's about him. Biblical worship happens when God's people respond to God's work, God's way. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, It goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.